The following program is a production of Lumpin' Radio, WLPN-LP Chicago, 105.5 FM. More information at lumpinradio.com. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on Lumpin' Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this September 2019 episode of Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about left politics and architecture, sometimes more of one, less of the other. And uh, we've been on summer break, Jamie. We have. We We haven't talked about Liverpool in at least a month. No, no. And uh, in that month, a lot of things have happened, uh, actually. Um, Liverpool beat Arsenal 3-1 to for one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then also in other (laughs) Buildings on Air sports news, because apparently this is slowly morphing into a European sports show. That's true. That's true. uh, yeah, how about Egon Bernal in the tour? That yes, was that was a great win, actually. Yeah. Great win. That so, was uh, well. I, mean, I feel bad for the poor French kid that led for yeah. you know twenty of the twenty nine stages to be cracked in the mountains. Yeah. So great, great last day win for him. So it was a very exciting tour, yeah. actually. And the Volta España is happening right now, and it's yeah. just as exciting. Speaking of which, did you see that the uh, air footage from the Vuelta? caused a uh this is a great buildings tie-in too so you know they have uh for the the welta they have drone footage that goes over the tops of the buildings as the bicyclists are going through the city streets and the drone footage turned up a large-scale marijuana growing farm (laughs) in i believe it was malaga (laughs) on somebody's rooftop so uh we can once again thank cycling for a a crackdown on illegal cannabis uh manufacture (laughs) in, in spain yeah uh, if, uh, you know, I, I don't partake myself, but a friend who is knowledgeable about such matters said that in Spain, it's more of an issue of scale. So hopefully these folks yeah. did not actually get into too much trouble. Uh, well, apparently <laughs> I, I, I saw it in the Times of London the other day and they said they did not. Yeah. It was it was I think they were the Times indicated they had like 40 plants. And uh, I, I think, you know, basically there's no real ramification for it. It's the sale and taxation. I it, see. So. All right. The more so, you know. They arrested two two Spanish nationals, according yeah. to the, the Times. So. so the building's takeaway is uh, be careful about your rooftops, folks. That's correct, especially when cycling's going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got a great show for today, for this uh, beautiful September day here in Chicago. Um, and, uh, yeah, this is our triumphant return to the Lumpen Air- Radio Airwaves um, after our summer break. And uh, first up, we'll be chatting with Tom Jacobs of Architects Advocate about getting architects involved in the September 20th climate strike um we'll have a link uh in our show notes and on the podcast version um then in our regular segment fun and angry uh that's the segment where we cover the topics in the architecture discourse um we'll be discussing alexandra lange's reflections on the the book sml xl um that was published in curbed a couple weeks ago um our regular fun and angry correspondent Anjali Rao can't make it this month, um, but luckily for this uh, month, we have a super substitute, Marianella Daprile, um, who's been on the show before, uh, will be returning and helping us out to discuss that article. And then last, uh, we'll open up our Buildings on Air mailbag um, with regulars and Louis and Craig Reschke of Future Firm. We're, we're going to answer your listener questions about buildings. There's still time to get questions Woo, in. Even. Get the questions yeah. in. You can send an email to buildingsonair at gmail.com and uh yeah we might read your question you might on the tweet show. it tweet it at us yeah, you can tweet it at us yeah. uh tweet at bldgs on air yeah i did that thing on twitter when i was making the account where i took out some of the vowels yeah, why did you do that always regretted yeah, it don't i guess i can change it you could. 
Anyway. Well, we've got Tom in the studio. Tom, thanks for coming down to Bridgeport. How's it going? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Yeah, and uh, Tom, of course, uh, uh, real Buildings on Air fans will know <laughs> that Tom was on the show a couple of years ago, yeah. uh, and we're thrilled to have you back. Um, I actually I heard you on a, another radio show. How dare you? <laughs> Earlier this week, you I, were... <laughs> I thought you wouldn't yeah. find out. So. <laughs> we did. The lumpen radio has <laughs> has ears everywhere and i i did actually get a, a text from uh co-prosperity sphere curator uh extraordinaire nick wiley who said you have have you heard about the architect strike you have to turn on npr now oh. and i was like oh man i'm surprised i haven't heard about this and i was like oh it's tom this is great <laughs> so so uh tell us what what's going on uh what what's the climate strike and yep. uh g- give a, give us the big picture so the climate strike is uh, going to happen on September 20. It is a global strike, a uh, global general strike. And the backstory of it um, has everything to do with the world's youth and more specifically with Greta Thunberg, mm. the uh, now 16-year-old Swedish activist or you know just student, um, who on August 20, uh, 2018, started a school strike. Mm. She literally walked out of the classroom uh, for three weeks straight, right, before the Swedish parliamentary elections. And uh, this had sort of been building up for her uh, in that she had, you know, a significant concern about, am I going to have a planet to live on? Is there a future for us since the climate crisis is staring in our faces? And I think she felt like there wasn't... um, really any uh, credible action or not enough. Mm-hmm. And she said, why should I go to school if if I won't have a future? So she started this quite, you know, really quite a bit under the radar until the Swedish media started picking up. She becomes, um, you know, she gets really more broadly covered in Europe. And then ultimately in December, she shows up at the uh, UN climate conference in Poland. I think it was COP24 or 25. And she gives this speech, which is recorded. I mean, mm-hmm. you can see it on YouTube. It's about three and a half minutes long. And um, if a- any of your listeners haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it because, I I mean, it's, it's basically, it takes your breath away. Mm. It is unbelievably powerful because she is 15 at the time. She's in front of these world leaders and talks with a clarity and uh, a directness and a sincerity that is mm-hmm. just you know we don't you don't see that in in the adult world as much <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it takes kids i guess to to sort of show us the way and yeah. and you know that really started the ball rolling yeah and so now there's a kind of uh, a real, uh, I understand it to be a kind of coalition of groups now that's kind of putting together a series of of kind of strikes uh, over the course of a, of a week. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, basically what, uh, just back to how the, the global climate strike came about, I mean, they had, uh, so the youth, so this movement and this that walking out of schools had had taken hold. Mm-hmm. Primarily in Australia and in Europe, there have been thousands and tens of, tens of thousands of kids that already started walking out. So they did it in March and May this year. Mm-hmm. There were two 
global climate strikes already, but what changed at the end of May, the Greta and her friends basically sort of turned it around, turned the tables on the adults mm -hmm. and said, look, it's nice for you guys to be so encouraging and saying like, yeah, you are so amazing. <laughs> why don't you, they turned around and said, why don't you join us? Yeah, You can do more than just pat us on the back. Mm -hmm. And so they set September 20 for the date and they said, we want adults to join you. And so because it's completely grassroots, you know, they obviously can't organize every group around the world, but mm -hmm. through multiple groups, as you said, uh, Illinois Youth Climate Strike, for instance, mm -hmm. is very active here. They, they're setting up the main strike in Chicago. Um, and this is all sort of coordinated through various other groups. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we will see how yeah, how how it turns out. Yeah, and, and Architects Advocate uh, has really stepped up to kind of organize the, the architect section of, of the climate strike, <laughs> which I really appreciate. I feel every, every protest could use an architect section. I, 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 I hope that's the that's what I aspire to anyway. Why not? Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we're sort of we're sort of wired for yeah. that, too. We, we yeah. could really contribute to lots of causes. Um, mm -hmm. I totally agree. Yeah. And I, I it's funny, too, because this is what I. And we say, you know, in, in a lot of like, you know, Marxist theory, there's there's great importance ascribed to like the really big general strike where everyone comes out. <laughs> and we say that that's my life's goal is to make sure that when that strike comes along, uh, <laughs> that, you know, that I'm, I'm helping to get the architects out there. <laughs> so, so, so uh, you know, I, there, there's some some affinities uh, with with this. I th and. Yeah, so it, it's it's September twentieth on at Federal Plaza, eleven thirty a.m. And um, you're you're also we're getting firms are pledging yes. all across the country. So so tell us about that. What are they pledging to, and uh, how many have signed up? What's the kind of response been? Yeah, so so we wanted we put the our platform behind this entirely mm -hmm. and. Uh, figured out that we we need to try to do two things. We need to try to get individuals to show up, but clearly, it's a strike, and this is America. I mean, yeah. people are not used to striking, mm -hmm. and certainly in you know sort of the regular uh, daily affairs. And so, we realized that we have to talk to firms in a way that basically explains it well enough that they can sort of connect the dots for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and we actually, we, we learned the lesson a little bit when we initially launched the, the drive to get firms to pledge, it didn't really go so well. Mm. And what we realized is that we were, we were overcomplicating it way too much. We were asking too many things. And until I get phone calls from colleagues who are leading other architecture mm -hmm. firms in Chicago and they say, look, Tom, I mean, you, you, we're pretty sure this is a good thing and so forth, but <laughs> wh what do you want us to do? We're confused. Yeah. And so we realize that we have to tell the story that uh, based on the timing, the time of day, mm -hmm. you know, over lunch, mm -hmm. uh, people ask questions and said, well, if we encourage our staff to participate in that, well, there will be people that, you know, they'll just walk out of work for a day and they won't even go there. And I said, well, if you have people like that, that's another issue. Don't, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> don't, don't conflate that because they may or may yeah. not want to work for you anyway. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for firms to, because this is a, this is, it's, it's, 
not a political issue. It's not a partisan issue. This is a, an issue of, of humanity, sure. of survival. And so if architects, if we, you know, I happen to be a partner in our firm. Mm-hmm. And if we don't lead on the level where we can say for certain topics like this, where mm-hmm. they are clearly, the, the, the youth are asking totally reasonable things. Yeah. They bring up prudent ways to deal with it. And if we can't back that, what can we back? Sure. Yeah. And uh, so in the pledge, firms basically is pretty simple, but they say we pledge to encourage our staff to participate if they are so inclined. Mm-hmm. And people had questions about, well, but what if I have, what if one of my teams has a deadline? Then, of course, the deadline is going to come first. I mean, it's not that complicated. Yeah. It, it, we're not saying you have to be there or it, it's an absolute. Yeah. But there, there surely ought to be a way where companies and certainly, you know, in America, with corporate America, it's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. We have to get businesses to take ownership of these issues. Sure. And this is just like one small step into it. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I mean, I feel like there's there's always this kind of step in activism where it begins as a kind of ethical obligation that is usually that usually requires someone making a kind of sacrifice. And I think that Often the goal of an organizer is to move everyone kind of beyond that, right? Yeah. <laughs> to where to yes. where you kind of have have built power to actually be able to kind of confront the real forces that are kind of you know pushing a a, 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 a counter agenda. And so you know, I, I, and I feel like with with especially it, it's it's so important to say that like you know, in America, we just like, we don't have that culture, right? And so, so being, I mean, so a lot of these firms, like almost certainly are going to take a hit to their bottom line for the day. And and then maybe employees who are walking out of firms might be uh, exposing themselves to a little bit of risk. But like that, that is like, in in the scheme of things, the way that I think about this, and I I don't know if you think about it the same way or not. But, um, you know, normalizing, withholding your labor is like such an important tool because it's one of the only it's one of the biggest tools we have yeah. just uh, and from from the kind of firm owner side and the management side you know being able to feel comfortable and confident saying no to a project that's going to do something bad and knowing that you're kind of working in solidarity with with others and from the employee side if you happen to work for an architecture office that does not have good practices feeling confident in in withholding your labor and sort of collectivizing activities there as well also seems like both of those aspects seem super important to to this particular kind of struggle, and like like um, I, yeah, I don't know if that if that's sort of that's that's kind of how I, how how I've been thinking about it in 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 my mind, and just thinking about architectural activism in in general as we kind of move move from this moment where there's been so much retreat to a moment where we can really kind of go go back on the on the offensive. Yeah, and I also hope that young people, you know, they have way more power than they realize. Mm-hmm. They think like, oh, you know, we're the lowest on the totem pole and we just have to like, you know, <laughs> head down and it's going to take so many years. Uh-huh. Yes, there's some of that in terms of learning how to become a better architect. But yeah. the thing is, my dream is that and this ties to education, right? As we when we talk to young architects, we have to figure out a way to get them to to act on the things, their values, and their true beliefs. Yeah. And so if a young architect 
you know, this is a bit of a live experiment. So right. <laughs> which firm participates, which firms are part of the 2030 commitment to do to build, you know, carbon free buildings by 2030. Mm-hmm. There's so many metrics that you can look at. And then my dream is that young people are actually utilizing that choice. Mm-hmm. That's a fundamental American thing. It's all about freedom. <laughs> like, please okay. use it and, and go to work for people. Or when you have an interview, I'm now at school when we talk about how, how what do I do at an interview? What does my portfolio look? My, my advice to them is ask good questions. Ask questions that really you yeah. care about and that may they may not necessarily be able to answer right away but you can you know you're constantly surveying the field and you can put your labor your contribution to an area or to a firm or to a place that you think makes more sense yeah yeah it's really it's a really exciting moment and and i um I, I mentioned this also, uh, spe- like in, in other climate and architecture news, um, you know, last year on the show or a couple of years ago on the show during the Chicago Architecture Biennial, we had Nick Corrady and Joanna Kloppenberg on um, who uh, put together a little project called Complicity that was all about uh, the, 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 the BP oil funding mm. of Chicago Architecture Biennial, which I think is interesting because, um, you know, this year I don't think BP is like the headline sponsor, but they are still a major contributor. And so uh, actually as part of the Together series of shows that's going to be happening here at the co-prosperity sphere and kind of around town um will be will be showing this this traveling exhibition about architectural activism and and advocacy called uh now what uh architectural activism 1968 to present um and we decided as that show to not uh, be be officially listed or you know otherwise associated with um, with the biennial for that reason. So I, I mean I and I and I and we're gonna have a panel about it. Um, uh, we'll post a link to it. But I, I mean I think it's it's an interesting um, kind of moment to see how other industries outside of architecture really use gr- like greenwashing and and the kind of profession to to kind of like culture wash their their image in some ways because presumably at the biennial there's going to be lots of very progressive projects I, I know for a fact there are and um uh you know i think bp wants to associate themselves with that in yeah. some sort of way um and so yeah I, you know it's that's one of those things where I, it's hard it's hard to kind of navigate as an individual architect through that those kinds of developments but having a collective seems so important and this really seems like a kind of opportunity to to build a collective this 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 protest yeah and you know your bp example is is interesting because of course it's you know to to truly judge what's happening or how much they actually do you know, on, on on behalf of turning into a zero carbon economy and so yeah. forth, it's just very difficult to judge. Yeah. What I know for sure is that there is so much dark money still involved yeah. and sort of, you know, um, uh, uh, subsidies for every fossil fuel there is mm-hmm. as compared to incentives for renewable energies. It's, if you just, if you look at the numbers and I don't know them all off of top of my head, 
but you know the difference is staggering. Yeah. So where I think it gets tricky, and where I think BP or any other oil company should be challenged, or just you know mm-hmm. they should be pushed to be as transparent as they possibly can, mm-hmm. is where on that thing do they truly stand? Yeah. And of course, since they sell oil, I'm sure that's a little difficult. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. But I, sure. I actually, you know, I, I wasn't aware of it until you just said it. But the fact is, that's the the interconnectedness of 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 the economy, of politics, of culture too. Yeah. So the fact that BP is the main sponsor for it is, I think it is a, it raises a big question. Yeah. And to the extent that it, that, that gets asked, right. I think it has to be. Otherwise we're just not being honest and we're not, you know. Yeah, well, and it's, and it's one of those things too. I mean, I, I think architects always have to make this negotiation too, where, you know, I mean, a lot of our clients are real estate developers who like, you know, they might not be like, <laughs> always the worst, but they might be sometimes, right? I mean, uh, they might be very good. There's a whole range, but you know, in my experience, real estate developers tend to care mostly about profit and that's kind of, and we know that and we understand it, but there's always this kind of negotiation that you have to make as the architect, which is like, you know, well, how much, how much, uh, how much good do I think I can do with this kind of project? Or like, you know, um, there's, there's always, there's always many kinds of negotiations like that, 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 that happen. Um, in in our everyday work <laughs> and so and it, and it strikes me in the case of the biennial that a lot of the contributors will kind of be using it as a kind of robin hood it's like sure we'll take your funding and we're going to do an amazing community experience experiment with it yeah, right yeah i think that's a perfectly valid thing to do and i think um you know it, it also it doesn't because it only takes like one really vocal like small vocal group of people to like raise the question yes. in a way that really resonates right I, like I that's agree. where it all starts and so you know, I think it's it's not to to impugn anyone who is, who is working in the official biennial or even the curators of the biennial, but I do think that you know raising those sorts of and and I think that this will be a really good and powerful example of that on the on the twentieth. Yeah, and and you know, in terms of let's talk about the economy mm-hmm. or business, and I experienced this with. In, in my teaching at IIT, where I, I teach the seminar, it's called Good Design and Good Business. Mm. When you ask, I've just done it again because we started up a new class and I have an entry survey. Yeah. And it asks two questions among a bunch of other ones. One of them is, what on, in the business section of the survey, and it says, uh, what is the traditional bottom line, uh-huh. question mark, followed by what is the triple bottom line? Uh-huh. And what you, first of all, you would be shocked. We have architecture students who are about to graduate, both in the upper levels of the bachelor program and mm-hmm. the graduate. A lot of them, a surprising number of them, have no idea what either of them is. Mm-hmm. Some of them might know what the traditional bottom line is, but the triple bottom line, the idea that businesses exist, that they serve multiple stakeholders, mm-hmm. right? It, this this aberration of the business leaders of the last about uh, almost 20 years now, mm-hmm. when the business roundtable in 1997 officially decided mm-hmm. that businesses serve shareholders first and foremost, yeah. and that all the other stakeholders, community members, employees, suppliers, whoever, are you know a derivative of the shareholders. It's a is a complete um, it's it's a massive misinterpretation of why we have businesses. The reason we have businesses is that we have decided in our free form of government that businesses deliver results 
better than any other form, and that's why we entrust resources into their care, mm-hmm. but they, they deliver needs for people. Sure, right? yeah. That's the need. The fact that you have to make profit is understood because otherwise you can't keep going a business. But the idea that it's about making money is just something that you know has, has really bothered yeah. me for a long time. Yeah. And so back to the triple bottom line, if we – if we don't contribute as educators to make sure that our young people come out of school or out of when they start joining firms, mm-hmm. if they don't know that a company isn't first and foremost to make money, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you know, we have a huge problem. Mm-hmm. That's part of why it sort of just kept going and going without mm-hmm. any real challenge. And so we have a lot of ground uh, to, yeah. to cover there. Yeah, yeah, and I and I I think I have I have a I have a different sort of I have a, a slightly different set of politics from that. But I I'm, I'm super appreciative of the, where you're coming from because I mean if 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 we don't start to if if the the kind of mainstream uh, of 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 this country doesn't start to think think with that approach. Right then, then we're going to be we're we're all going to be kind of uh, screw, screwed for lack of, <laughs> for lack of a better yeah. word. Well, uh, the, the part of the reason we are now facing you know yeah. into the into this huge existential threat is that our economists uh-huh. have told us how the system works, yeah. and they have been wrong right. for like what 150 years <laughs> right. because. They said, oh, it's the market and it's this, mm. but the environment or the polluting the environment, there's no cause yeah. to it. That is completely backwards. Yeah. It makes zero sense. Yeah. And so, you know, for them to have always, they, they've figured out a way for them to be, you know, at the head of the, yeah. of everything and, and sort of driving the agenda. Yeah. But they've been wrong. Yeah. Well, the, the, the classical economics term, I think, for natural resources it, w- w- it, w- it was free gifts of nature right <laughs> and, and I think we're, we're understanding that you know it's not free right I mean uh, in, in some level and um, and so I you know I think there's there's plenty of plenty of lefty uh, Economists who still who still use that term kind of knowingly, I think, yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, free gifts of nature in, in quotes, right? And and that, and that tells you kind of everything you need to know. Yeah, that's sort of the our human you, the attitude. I mean, the arrogance that yeah. we have as human beings. Yeah, to assume that we are not. You know, we're somehow not part of the rest of the biological yeah. world and so forth is, yeah. is, is astonishing. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've been really encouraged by um, is 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 the the thinking about the Green New Deal that's come up, mm-hmm. because, you know, I think I think so much of climate activism has been very intimidating for people because, you know, it, it, it kind of has historically had this problem where, you know, to impart a sense of urgency to people about what is, you know, very kind of abstract <laughs> it, it, it often. I mean, not not really. It's starting to become less and less abstract. Right. And for people who have faced natural disasters, it's anything but abstract. Yes. But but for most people, it kind of remains that way. And so you, you kind of impress upon them this, this sense of urgency but with, with the statistics and everything. And then they go, well, man, if, I, uh, if all of that's true – 
like then what i mean i can't do anything yeah, right, right? And, and i think that that's been the case for so long and on, and on one hand you like you understand it you know a little bit but now the with with the green new deal and connecting it through to people's kind of lived experiences and and, and jobs and and lives and like i think that there's a kind of chance for us to really articulate a positive vision of climate justice now that's that's kind of worth fighting for not that you know some people haven't always gravitated towards that but i but i feel like uh, it's becoming a more sort of popular demand in in a in a kind of more hopeful context for doing activism. Yeah, and I think maybe it is a sort of a watershed moment that we had to come this close to the abyss, so to mm-hmm. speak. Um, but you know, we end the Pledge of Allegiance with uh, uh, liberty and justice for all. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm now a member of a, of a school board also so as an elected official. And so, you know, we recited at the beginning of every yeah. meeting and it sort of, as you do it, um, it struck me, you know, this is a fundamentally American idea mm-hmm. that it would be about justice for all. Yeah. And so the Green New Deal, I think, is the first framework that correctly links not only the environmental threat, but it also says who are the people who are going to suffer most. Yeah. Of course, is the one who can least afford it or who can least protect themselves. Right. If you look at the carbon footprints of industrialized nations versus, you know, other parts of the world, we are the problem. <laughs> right. We are the yeah. invasive species and we have to, you know, when we it just makes me feel super uncomfortable when we so happily recite things like the pledge mm-hmm. and we say yeah it's about justice, yeah. but do we mean it? Right. And I think we if we're honest with ourselves and you know, if we're honest with ourselves as adults, yeah, you know, we're already adults. We're probably already sort of baked in about <laughs> whether we're useful or not. But I have deep concerns about yeah. this, this, the, the, uh, about not being honest with our children. Yeah. And they are now, you know, the fact that they have woken up, they see through the BS. I mm-hmm. mean, they can, you know, the kids, the Parkland kids mm-hmm. who started sort of, chanting like no let's cut through the bs Mm -hmm. they have i mean that gives me hope and i think they can you know you can't fool them Mm -hmm. and so i think we should find a way to to take that in as a as a positive as as a motivating force and say okay you know what let's be more honest Mm -hmm. let's have have the courage to bring difficult topics up Mm -hmm. let's go and strike Mm -hmm. it you know the strike by the way you know why we're striking because it works. Yeah. Uh, Angela Merkel in July is on record of saying Germany moved faster on implementing climate action things mm-hmm. because of Greta and her friends. Mm-hmm. That's why we're doing it. Yeah. They, the kids have actually succeeded in a way uh, that we adults have not. Yeah. Yeah. Which is super inspiring. Yeah. And, um, and, and so in terms of the actual event on September 20th, um, I, I understand it's going to be pretty, pretty free form, right? I, from what yes. I understand, uh, there's, there's, there's not really much of a program program. And like you said, the kind of ask is, uh, uh, 
pretty simple, right? It's it's show up and the- make a sign, <laughs> bring it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, for anybody who has been to the women's march or anything like that, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. Sure. It's like it doesn't really take that much explanation. But we are, you know, we're two weeks away from it. Mm-hmm. And the one thing we've also talked with members, other members of the profession and members of the AIA, and we are going to try to actually put some more focus on it. Uh, I'll mention the, the AIA 2030 commitment mm-hmm. specifically, right? This is a program firms voluntarily uh, join mm-hmm. and, and promise to build uh, carbon neutral buildings, renovations and new uh, buildings by 2030 to be carbon mm-hmm. neutral. And then there's sort of a step process. And, you know, we have uh, in Chicago, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but we have a, 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 I think it's maybe about 15% or something like that of firms. But why are we not at 75? Yeah. Sure. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's like if we are, why are firms not members of that commitment? Yeah. And so I think we're going to try to have some of our messaging. Uh, I think we will be part of, we have like a, a one minute segment where we can also take part in the official, you know, statements that are being made, mm-hmm. organized by the kids. And I think we're going to try to figure out how our specific messaging is towards things that firm can actually do, which are truly meaningful, mm-hmm. right? I mean, showing up at a showing at a, up at a protest doesn't really cut any carbon out of the air yet. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you convince a client or you build a building mm-hmm. and you can have it less, uh, it uses less energy and all of that. That yeah. is really, that is how we're going to make mm-hmm. a change. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I, I also t- wonder too, you know, I, I, I know this, and this is, <laughs> this is like, we're going to, from this big, big, abs- like sort of discussion to something very concrete, uh, that we sometimes talk about in the mailbag, but you know, I know in the Chicago energy code for buildings, um, has zero enforcement behind it, which I always find to be deeply upsetting where, uh, you know, architects have to self-certify that yeah. they're following even just the bare minimum energy code. And you see a lot of buildings going up and you think, how is that following the energy code? Yeah. And the answer is probably it's not. <laughs> no one checked. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm probably not going to put on a sign, you know, <laughs> make sure, hire more code reviewers to, you know, yeah, follow the not, energy code. But, not a you know, bad idea. Uh, I feel like, uh, you know, that that's something that certainly the AIA can push on, um, um, you know, uh, in a way that maybe other uh, sort of interest groups couldn't. Um, I think there's little things yeah, like that. Yeah. I mean, it may sound a little, you know, pedestrian, but it's actually, that would make a big difference. Sure, yeah. That uh-huh. would move the needle, yeah. so I'm all for it. Yeah, all for it. And, yeah, and I, you know, I also think, too, um, you know, I'm, I mean, I don't know, this, this, these popular mobilizations, I mean, they, they always intersect with the policy side of things, right? The policy doesn't change unless there's a big impetus. Yes. And, and I, that, that's so important to note, and it's also so important for these movements to kind of make, uh, and, and organizations to make links with each other so, so we can continue to hold the people who make the policy <laughs> accountable as they, as they sort of develop it, right? Because it's, it's not, you know, the, having an energy code is a great example. It's great to have an energy code, but if there's no accountability of like, well, right. you got to implement it, right. then we end up in a situation like that. And I think, um, 
especially as people kind of target the you know hundred companies who do the most pollution, <laughs> right? Yeah. Who, who who account for fifty percent of it? Some of whom I'm sure are, are making plenty of building materials. Uh, yeah. I, I would guess. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think keeping tabs on exactly how that legislation is working is going to be important because we might have to keep doing more strikes. <laughs> yeah, and, and absolutely. And the reason we started Architects Advocate, or as sort of the mission, the initial sure. formulation of the mission, was quite literally to drive policymaker to build momentum to ultimately drive policymakers and elected officials to enact better, you know, much tighter codes. Sure. I mean, we could do that. And, and California is a perfect example because California has shown that uh, very prudent and very stringent environmental rules have nothing to do with the success of the economy. There's this sort of famous decoupling mm -hmm. where you, you know, you clamp down. I mean, you, you tighten uh, rules and codes mm -hmm. on the one hand. And on the other, the economy keeps growing mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, beautifully. And so... Mm -hmm. Um, there's frequently an argument that, oh, you can't do that because it's just <laughs> right. not true. Yeah. And so we, we have to figure out a way how to get there very fast. Yeah. And so in, in, in terms of Architects Advocate, um, what's next for the, for the organization? So what do you imagine um, will hap be happening after the strike? Is, is it some of this policy uh, sort of uh, activity? Yeah, we, we have to figure out how to get in front of, or whether it's in D.C. or probably more, more likely in, uh, in Illinois and mm -hmm. in, in uh, City Hall in Chicago. Um, I'm convinced. I mean, this is just the, September 20 is the opening act. Mm-hmm. Where we, where our platform got involved, um, there will inevitably there will be more strikes like mm -hmm. that, uh, especially in 2020, and then leading up to the election. I mean, talk about a you know a, a banner year for activism. Yeah, that's coming up. Yeah, but where exactly we're going to go with the platform is uh, we're not entirely sure. Other than we are, we know this is just sort of a warm up exercise, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the the opening act. The, the more, the bigger movements and getting other professions or getting, why do engineers not have engineers advocate <laughs> or attorneys advocate? I mean, come on, how difficult is it? So eventually it'll catch on, we hope. And yeah. uh, we, we just keep growing. Yeah, and, and, uh, and, and how do people find out more information about, about Architects Advocate uh, and, and kind of September 20th in general? Yeah, so uh, for information about our platform and for firms to pledge is on uh, architects-advocate.com, our webpage. Mm -hmm. And if anybody's interested in, in uh, finding other strikes or locations, the globalclimatestrike.net, mm -hmm. uh, I think, is sort of the main platform mm -hmm. where you can see anywhere in the U.S. where you live, you can find a strike and join it. Yeah, terrific. Well, I know uh, the architecture lobby has endorsed the Ar Architects Advocate Action, and I'm we're ha I'm happy uh, that we can be allies in this fight. And no, this um, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and I'm and I'm and I'm really excited to for September 20th. I will be there. Uh, and, and also, in other climate-related news, uh, the Designing a Green New Deal conference at UPenn is coming up on September 13th. Um, listeners might recall, uh, I think it was one or two episodes ago, we had Billy Fleming. 
um, from the McCarg Center uh, over there. Come on, um, of the McCarg Center and Indivisible. Um, and so I think September is going to shape up to be a really banner month for architects getting uh, very meaningfully involved in this mega important fight. Yeah. Um, and so That's Tom, a very oddly specific, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know rubric for for climate change fight. Yeah, well, you know, we're we're uh, we're we're just working on. The, you know, I'm an architect, so I, I'm I, working on the architects, and yeah. I, you know, like you said, I think the engineers have to get their house in order. Uh, but you know, I like the 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 students are there they're ready yeah uh, but you know soon we have the bakers I assume bakers are organizing themselves <laughs> oh yeah you know, there's like an enormous bakery the contingent baker, yeah the bakery yeah. you know we'll have a, the whole the whole village Jamie, any, any the whole profession village. that starts with an A we already have merch <laughs> yeah, right. and you know a logo well, yeah. they happily yeah. give it away auto yeah. manufacturers <laughs> yeah okay. terrific all right. all right well thank you Tom thank you for having me yeah. If you enjoy listening to Buildings on Air and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. Welcome back to Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about left politics and architecture, sometimes more of one, less of the other. And uh, we are back with our regular segment, Fun and Angry. Fun and Angry is, of course, uh, where we oh, talk. Was yeah. I supposed to do a theme for this? We're, yes, I believe so. Oh, uh, man, I've really dropped the ball. Uh, your the tone of your voice makes me think that maybe you haven't. No, <laughs> I've, I've I've totally forgot. I totally because I think last time I sang you guys a little ditty. You did. Uh, I think you should just record that from last time and we'll play it. Fun and angry, fun and angry with Kiefer and Julie, something like that. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Okay. So next time, I just want you to put like uh, some music to that. Okay, okay. <laughs> Maybe trombone or something. Trombone. Okay, I'll get <laughs> yeah. right on. That. Okay, and uh, and you know we'll call it a day. Okay, uh, well, I'm sorry about that. Let's just start over. <laughs> let's not. Let's give people on the full thing. So, All right. ready? Here we go. Here we go. Fun and angry, fun and angry with Kiefer and Julie. Thank you, Jamie. And so Fun and Angry, of course, uh, is the segment where we talk about the discourse in architecture. Um, it's it's a kind of meta segment in that way. Um, but this week, Anjuli is on a much-deserved uh, vacation. Uh, and in her stead, uh, we have the lovely Marianella Deprile. How's it going? Hi, it's good. I can say lovely in a non-creepy way because <laughs> because we we are a partnership in life, uh, which mm-hmm. bears mentioning maybe, so I don't sound like a creep if I say something like that. Okay, that's good. You can cover all your bases. <laughs> Thank you. You just sound creepy in other ways. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, Ways that I don't know about. Um, so today in Fun and Angry, we are discussing the article Rem Kulhas is the Real Diva, which was published in Curbed on August 22nd, 2019, written by Alexandra Lange, uh, the, the, the noted architectural critic. Uh, Alexandra, if you're listening, come on Buildings on Air. We'd love to have you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, this was a really interesting article. Uh, would you like to summarize it for us? Would I like to summarize it for us? You know, the big picture for those who may not have read it. Well, maybe we should talk about um, the larger context, which is that there was a kind of curbed this like series where Alexandra Lang um, read and then reviewed um, in the loose sense of the word reviewed uh, a series of kind of like classic architecture tomes. Mm -hmm. And then this, SMLXL was the last one in the series. And so SMLXL is 
kind of like the manifesto, architectural manifesto to end all manifestos. <laughs> it was like, it was written in, or published in 1995 um, and is written by, um, I mean, generally uh, credited to Rem Koolhaas, but is written by him in collaboration with Bruce Mao and um, OMA, which um, was the firm that his firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the piece called Rum Koolhaas is, is the Real Diva is kind of about how the how SML Excel served this really like advertising role uh, with both for Rem's career, but also changed the way in which architects um, presented themselves to the world. And now they were kind of empowered to use this like manifesto and this really sort of flashy way. And um, it's interesting because the piece itself is written um, in or is divided up into the same sections as the book. So SMLXL and um, Alexander kind of uses that structure to also analyze Rem's career um, and his trajectory alongside the book. Yeah. Is and that I, a fair? I think as, that's a really, yeah, that's a good summary. And I, I mean, okay. I think for those who, do, who don't know, like <coughs> SML XL is, a, is just, it's one of the most like insane things that's ever been made. <laughs> like, and especially like in terms of a book. And, and I think that, um, the article really summarizes that quite well. Um, I mean, it's, a lot of the graphic design is very sort of fragmented. Um, you know, I think Alexander talks about this is the, is the kind of way in which the, you know, w- the way that we kind of expect like clear, crisp images that like kind of give you a complete picture uh, in, in this day and age. Uh, the, the, SML XL is the, the total opposite of that. It, it's, it's like a kind of series of fragments, uh, fragmented essays. There's like a dictionary that runs throughout the whole book overlapping with everything. You know, uh, the images are kind of cropped. A lot of them are hazy and out of focus. Um, and and it, it, it really just, it's 1400 pages and it just kind of washes over you. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot that you can unpack there, I think. Right. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, I think that's kind of the point that there is this like illegibility and that's almost the point of it, um, the point of the book. Um, But then I think that there's this other question about like, well, why, (laughs) what is the point of a book if it's going to be illegible? I mean, that's one of the questions that Alexandra's piece brought up for me um you know there's this kind of yeah like you're saying she talks about like how 20 almost 25 years after it's published now you look at these images that maybe at the time seemed really like cutting edge or like the kind of future of architectural representation and it they look totally inscrutable And so then the question becomes, for me, becomes like, well, why are they inscrutable? And what is it that they're trying to communicate? Are they trying to communicate something about how actually, like, architects don't need to communicate at all? Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I guess for me, that just brought up a question of like, what um, was Rem's project, Rem Coolhouse's project, sort of to begin with? Um, and like I like his project as like a person, an architect. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, like his like life's work. Or what was he after? And I think that, um, you know, we don't. We were talking last night when we were prepping for this segment about how we don't want to like ascribe intention or like try to read too much into what someone meant or didn't mean. Um, And so I don't want to do that necessarily. But I also do think that there is this, you know, Rem's career really kind of skyrocketed, um, especially post the book. And it seemed you know, you kind of look back on it and <clears throat> it does seem like it has been this lifelong quest for fame mm-hmm. and at almost any cost. And so to me, to that, to like have the thing that launches you into that like stratos- stratospheric level of fame to be a book that is generally inscrutable <laughs> is actually like pretty telling about what you're after. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we're talking yeah. about, the, the, I think it's, he's this, it's this kind of interesting. I mean, he, Ram Kulas is almost perfectly molded himself to being like easily mythologized right and Uh and debated and part of the discussion because it's so hard to say exactly like what he's up to like what his life's work is like you're saying and Mm -hmm. i you know i think one of the ways that one of the ways that we framed that sort of last night was thinking about like well like in the best case scenario Right. Like he's this he's this kind of interesting character. You know, he always says that he's a child of 68, 1968, who kind of had some radical ideas. But he's like, you know, operating at like a moment post Cold War, like peak end of history. And, you know, he decided that he was going to kind of take what he could from 68 and try to like inject it into capital late capitalist space that's like the charitable reading i don't know that it's my reading (laughs) i think there's a there's a there's an absolutely opposite reading which is that like you know here's a person who's clear i mean he's clearly a very smart guy who kind of looks at the world with a materialist kind of analysis and he totally contented himself to kind of ride like surf the wave of capitalism like just ride ride the wave and and because he he was he was very cynical about any kind of possibilities of changing it so like you might as well have fun right and i and i feel like those are the kind of two poles (laughs) and like the reality is probably somewhere in between or maybe both things and it kind of changes every day who knows but it's you know i i don't know i'm doing the thing about ascribing intentions. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think at the end of the day, it, yeah. it doesn't actually really matter what yeah. he was up to. It, sure. Like, especially in the context of this piece. Um, I mean, it, you know, we have to, we can have different readings. And um, and the reason I say it doesn't matter what he was up to bec- is that there are, there have been all of these repercussions um, from his work um, that are just fact and they're not yeah. like are that are like beyond describing you know in, intention to like you know some of his built work, but also like the fact that Oma was like 
basically like a star architect factory for a while right and that there are so many architects who are working now who kind of were brought up at oma mm -hmm. and who are all doing sort of really different things yeah and i think that there is there is like a bit of um that in alexandra's piece too um yeah. she, you know she spends a little bit of time talking about the way in which um the mythologized rem like not only exists like within smlx but then also like ends up like coming out in the work of these other architects who sort of came up in the office mm -hmm. um and those are effects that are actually i think you know just there yeah like um, the workplace culture effects yeah like, uh, you know yeah exactly the these places kind of have the same yeah I mean, they're 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 they, at least based on my kind of anecdotal what i what i hear they're they're like sort of sweatshops right i mean mm -hmm. at least in the sense that like you know they're 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 kind of the people who work in these places come from all over the globe mm -hmm. and so the only real community they develop is attached to their their job yeah in a way that you know i i don't know i, I always find to be a little bit disturbing yeah yeah and i think that like I mean, again, you know, I don't know that you can, like, point a finger and say, like, that, like, the 80, 90-hour work week for architects was, like, born with OMA, but certainly it was, like, a site of yeah. pro pro proliferation for it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it just it just strikes me that it's, it's I mean, when you, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I always have a soft spot for Rem Koolhaas a little bit, like I mm -hmm. be, because SMLXL is actually one of the book. It's a book that made me want to become an architect, not because I like read it and I was like, oh, like this is just it, and I have to do this. But uh -huh. you know, I was I was sort of sixteen and I lived in like the suburbs in Atlanta, uh, as you know, and mm -hmm. like I somehow got a copy of this book. And the book is like nothing you've ever seen before, but there's also this kind of amazing chapter on Atlanta in it. Uh -huh. um, and and I knew all of the places that he was talking about, and, and and I just kind of never read anyone talk about the place, this place that I knew and grew up in, mm -hmm. like that, like with a kind of like critical eye, and and in a kind of in a way that I was was kind of really smart, and and to me as a 16 year old, <laughs> felt mm -hmm. really like like a a, a slightly edgy 16 year old in like you know the the mid 2000s is actually it's like the perfect audience for this book almost mm -hmm. you know uh and so but but that you know set me down a path where and you know my ideas have developed a lot since then obviously mm -hmm. but i always have a soft spot for 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 kuas a little bit but i mean I, I think part part of it is that you know uh, and, and alexandra has points this out is john portman you know the the architect who he kind of writes about in that chapter about in, in atlanta and like victor groen these are all architects who are also like deeply 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 enmeshed in real estate uh, capital uh-huh like john portman was his own developer groen was the shopping mall guy and 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 alexander uh, points out that like you know oh th these are like financial heroes uh, m more than architectural heroes even uh -huh. and i always and i always i get the sense that Kulas is kind of on this quest to like I don't know, like become the supreme capitalist, so he doesn't have to worry about capitalism anymore. Yeah. Right? And but like you know, like 
and and I don't know, but like that that has consequences, right? And like one of the consequences is that like you end up, you know, you play the media game extremely well, but like you know, then you will never be able to not get talked about as a star architect. Yeah. Or you. you I mean, I think run your office in this negative way or whatever. Yeah, you run your office in exploitative ways, or you take projects that are like ethically questionable. Um, that in places where you're not going to have any control over the labor practices and the people who build the building that you designed are going to be like severely exploited. Um, And I think that like that's one point that Alexandra makes sort of toward the end of the piece is, you know, whether potentially, you know, taking for granted the fact that like Rem became this like huge star is potentially like one of the most famous architects of the last few decades. And she poses this question, you know, could he have used a stardom to refuse competitions, which are, I'll say, this is not a quote. This is just an aside. Competitions are often the way that uh, many like especially young architecture firms sort of break into like the world of capital a architecture but they're frequently unpaid and so all of these like you know hundreds of hours go into competitions that often you know reap no rewards so she says you know could he have used stardom to refuse competitions establish parameters for equitable practice mm-hmm. set a 40-hour work week not work in china and the middle east and i think that's a pretty interesting question to ask of Rem, not because we, I want to think about whether he would have ever wanted to do those things. I like mm-hmm. don't really care, <laughs> but I, yeah. I, I, it was interesting question to pose because it makes me think about whether Rem or any one other person could have ever brought about those changes. And I think for me, it comes down to this question of like, what is our theory of change? Yeah. And if we're thinking about changing the, the system that like under which architecture operates, could we just change like the quote unquote architectural system or would in order to change it would we also have to change like the greater societal structures and if which i think we would mm-hmm. and then if we believe that then i don't think it would actually be possible yeah. for any one person to yeah. have right. that kind of effect yeah um to just say okay well like now now i'm saying that this you know working asking employees to work more than 40 hours a week is unethical and therefore like no one should do it. Right. Um, and actually I think you have to do, you'd have to do like enact much deeper change than that. Um, because the reason that firms ask workers to work more than 40 hours a week is so that they can produce things quickly enough to, to then be able to turn a profit. Right. And that's, fundamentally like the thing that keeps (laughs) people from right from changing from you know not exploiting yeah well Um, yeah that was not a very clear way to say that but (laughs) i mean you can take another stab no it's okay okay. i mean i i but i'm i'm definitely picking up what you're putting down and i think the theory of change stuff is is super important and like as is the kind of context right because i mean it, it strikes me that 
Rem Kulhas, maybe more than any other architect, might actually share that theory of change and at least the kind of parts of it that understand that like, hey, you as Mr. Architect, you can't actually do a lot here. And I, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think that uh, especially, you know, and, and I, I think that's still true. I mean, we talk all the time in the show. One of the, one of the taglines of the show is like a healthy skepticism about the power of design. And people are always like, are you sure you wrote that right? And I'm like, yeah, like this is a show uh-huh. about architecture where we kind of really are not sure if there's, you know, what the power of design is. And, and, and we definitely think that it's usually overstated, right? Mm-hmm. And, but, I, and I, but I think that like what, what's, what's definitely different is like, like, you know, now, if you're if you're cynical, like you're behind the times. I mean, it's just like now there's 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 so much reason to really like believe that you can hmm. change the system. Yeah. And in, in a way that that just like it, I think 20 years ago, especially even as it was just right before the global justice movement, right? Like you could really be forgiven for being like, uh, like, you know, we're never, this is all about the developers anyway. Yeah. Like, and so like, I might as well just like do whatever makes me happy. Um, and, and so like on some level, like I, I find that deeply upsetting and, and sort of wrong, but I, I also almost understand it. But I, I think if it, you look at that attitude now today and like, I mean, if you have that attitude today, like, there's something wrong with you, I think. Yeah, well, I think that's interesting. I think that it is true that the whole book kind of does read as, like, a retreat or a resignation. Mm. You know, like, well, we can't really do anything, so we might as well just kind of have fun and reduce, like, maybe these revolutionary ideas that I have because I'm a child of 68 into, like, kind of aesthetic aesthetics yeah and or, or is architectural the, the architectural device of the social condenser yeah which is when you kind of overlap rooms and, and spaces so that you know dif- different activities and people are kind of overlapping that's one of Kulas's signature moves of, is kind of transplanting that from soviet architecture into the architecture of the 90s and 2000s yeah i guess what i find that's kind of that's interesting. What I was thinking about while you were talking is that um, now, I guess architects now haven't really inherited uh, a model for engaging with our current political moment that's like not REMS. Yeah. Um, because I would, I would venture to say, I think that there has been. Yeah. Um, like a post-political kind of feeling in architecture yeah. for until maybe about five years ago. Yeah. And then there was like a turn toward like the social ar- kind of architecture. Yeah. Which maybe has a lineage in like the hippie, hippie modernism, right? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, but um, like that still to me doesn't really address uh, or a theory of change that is rooted in like a materialist analysis of the world. Yeah. Um, right. Cause like, I, I think in many ways, like social architecture is driven by this idea that like, if architects can each kind of like do like one good deed, <laughs> then we can, you know, slowly like transform the world. And I think that maybe you're right that like Rem, uh, and his kind of like general like intellectual world and other people who worked with him were a little bit more aware of like the fact that you can't 
bring change about without mass movement, but mm-hmm. were like resigned because they were like, well, that's never actually going to work. Sure. And it's never going to happen. Yeah. Um, and so I guess now what we're stuck with as like people in the architecture world is like figuring out a th- uh, like a third option. Right. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> of like a third way. <laughs> but not that kind of third way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I was going to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So I think that that's um, the Alexander's piece kind of really made me think about that and made me think about how, you know, when even when I was in school, like, f- I guess, 15 years after um SMLXL came out, it was still kind of like the reference yeah, point in a totally. lot of ways. I mean, just that, that like you're going to make a t- like a ton. The design process was like highly iterative and you're going to make just mm-hmm. like a ton of models. Yeah. And that, that was like, that was a very sort of like OMA. Sort and like of also like the inscrutable drawing and yeah. like the timelines of things and like looking at architecture in like a cinematic way. Like all of that uh, is very even, like even inherited just, from REM. Yeah, or even just like looking at looking at things, even if they like seem to be evil, with a kind of like cool curiosity, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. you know, almost just like without without much without much judge, like criticism without judgment, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of a, a strange uh, a strange paradox to my mind. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's but that's at the heart of like the Cool Haas project is mm-hmm. this like forever cool critical distance yeah. from everything, which is so so boring. Like, a detachment it's so like a cool detachment like that's so 90s to me yeah i mean you know it's like winona ryder like Like rem and winona actually very similar well yeah yeah (laughs) yeah and i mean again i think it's like while while even as i can like sit here now and sort of just be like god that's so boring you know it's like i i I totally understand it like uh you know i I mean i I think rem kulas rem kulas more than any other contemporary architect works in this kind of in that kind of Miesian way of thinking, right? Where hmm. where it's about sort of fully inhabiting the zeitgeist of the moment, yeah. and like I think that Rem Kulhas like fully inhabits that zeitgeist, like, but like not cool anymore. 90s attachment. Yeah, not anymore. Because that's not the zeitgeist anymore. It's not. No, and so but I, I guess it just never really resonated with me, honestly. Yeah. SMLXL. I remember like feeling like it, I really had to like like it yeah. when I was in school and mm. like look like reading through it and yeah. just being like this is kind of like I said I have a soft spot for it but you know also and I like the cranberries so <laughs> okay. you know I have like this set of 90s references that's you know uh there but I don't I I mean yeah why it's so boring to be detached I, well I think that you know, it's probably like on some level like a protective stance. But I do think that like you're right that now we are in this moment where it feels like, okay, we are 10 years away from full-blown climate catastrophe if we don't really start to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, you know, far right-wing uh, presidencies and a lot of like major um, like c- countries like power players in the world and really like the only the only historically like the only um way that conditions have changed have has been through like mass um upheaval and mass movement from like 
what we would normally call like the grassroots or like the the of working people and i think that we we are very much like living in a moment where like that feels like it it could be real and we are careening potentially or like organizing toward like that kind of a movement and you read smlxl and it just seems like so off yeah um yeah. And I don't think that that I I don't really know that that's exactly like what Alexander's point is in this no. piece, but it that that is what it feels like, and it also just seems like yeah, like what is the point really? Yeah, of this giant tome. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I feel like um, the the book has this amazing parable at the end of it, or it's, mm. it's actually at the end of Delirious New York. Um, and then it, it gets recapped, I think, in SML XL also. Mm-hmm. Delirious New York was Rem's first book uh, that really, like, first initially propelled him to mm-hmm. notoriety. Um, and it's funny, too. We keep talking about how famous he is and and you know the show the show is on fm before it reaches its kind of you know pu- <laughs> the the more niche audience on the podcast and, mm-hmm. and probably most of the people who are listening don't know who rem kuas is right i mean because yeah, which is like not. also like one of and a really important thing to know like architecture is just like such a weird small yeah. world um you know we we in chicago happen to have one one of the very few oma projects in america um, in the McCormick Tribune Center, which is uh, on the IIT campus. If mm-hmm. you're ever on the orange line and you go through like a weird, gal- like corrugated galvanized tube, uh, that is above, that's the building. You've you've taken the train through the building <laughs> um, in some way. So there you go. Uh, he also mm-hmm. did the CCTV building in Beijing, the one that was the kind of big cantilever. Um, folks would know that one too. But yeah, the the parable of this, though, is that there's all these kind of Soviet architects who had invented the social condenser and they build themselves a literal kind of like raft, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to to sail across the Atlantic Ocean uh, to go to kind of New York. And I, I, I forget exactly how the parable sort of ends, but it ends, if I recall, like in, in this kind of moment of indeterminacy. It's like, are they taking these Soviet ideas and like just injecting them into this thing or like, you know, going to build a safe haven for them mm-hmm. in like the weird cracks and crevices of late capitalism? Mm-hmm. Like or like, was that the thing that they're the spectacle, the thing that they were looking for all along? Right. And I think that um, I. I I, I suspect that the indeterminacy of it reflects the indeterminacy of of the author, right? On that question, yeah, I and think- I and I think that that's why. I mean, this piece leaves us with lots of questions about that, right? And and I yeah. think we have lots of questions too. And I kind of suspect that you know, even though we want answers, that is maybe we don't get the answers because it's an open question well, it's for the subject. Interesting too, to right? think like that. Rem was like once viewed as this like you know revolutionary um and then to think that you know today like so many architects struggle with like bad working conditions long work long hours like under getting underpaid and to think that like that was a a mode of working like we were talking about earlier that was really made like commonplace by rem and and his office yeah is like this you know 
irony, really. Yeah. And irony is like not very interesting to yeah. me, but it is like <laughs> worthwhile to think about like, why is it that he was considered such a revolutionary? Was it really like basically only f for like aesthetic reasons? And I think it is in some ways like a cautionary tale. Yeah. Um, you can't like make change by yourself no. and you can't make change just by like being flashy and uh, like drawing attention to yourself even if the ideas that you're drawing attention to <laughs> yeah. are very interesting, which I think in a lot of ways, like they are yeah. slash were. Well, and also you can't, this <clears throat> is like a weird, going to be a weird sentence, but you can't not make change by deciding that you're going to just try to not make change. Right. <laughs> like, sure. you know, in some way, like these, these, these things that he yeah, did like there was still effects, an effect. even if he wasn't the kind of, you know, uh, progenitor of, of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, it's such an important point you raised too about, you know, just the nature of architectural work changing. Right. I mean, like now so much, uh, you know, it's a, it's a downwardly mobile profession and, and the kind of, uh, because of drafting technologies, the architectural workers, architectural designers are drafting the projects also in using the computer software. So mm -hmm. it's a much more like industrialized in terms mm -hmm. of social relations mm -hmm. profession. And so like that, that's one of the things that's created a kind of real basis for like workplace organizing and architects becoming part of a kind of larger popular movement mm -hmm. in a way that probably did not make sense. I mean, it maybe was beginning to make sense like 20 years ago, but it, it probably mm -hmm. was not, not the same. Yeah. I mean, I think Alexandra touches on this a bit in the piece when she talks about like the split, the mm -hmm. splitting of AMO from OMA right. and AMO being like the ideas agency. And it's interesting because I think she makes this point about how the split was maybe about getting finally architects getting credit for all of the work that they do that they don't normally get paid for. Mm -hmm. And I mean, again, it's like this question of like, okay, are we ascribing intention or whatever? But I actually don't think it was about that at all. Yeah. Like, I think it was for for Rem making that decision was not about like, okay, this is like a fair labor question. This is just like a question of like, what else can we like make money for and <laughs> control? Yeah. And, you know, if you like, if it was actually about labor, what would have happened is that people would have gotten more money potentially or people would have gotten more time to work on projects so that they would have had time within the regular working hours to do their drawings and also to do the research and writing mm -hmm. and get paid for both of them the reason mm -hmm. that they weren't get, getting paid for their research and writing is that they were like doing it outside of work hours because their deadlines were so tight right right i right. mean that's just what happens at most architecture firms yeah. and so i think this question of like you know how okay, yes, now we can, like, get paid for that work because we've, like, separated it out and, like, now it's got, like, its own firm. Really what it does is, like, it totally preserves the idea or the kind of possibility for, like, still, like, for explo exploitation to still be, like, just a regular part of, like, working as an mm -hmm. architect, mm -hmm. right? Because, okay, like, say you're an architect, you work at OMA, your firm gets split, maybe you were doing a lot of research and you get moved from OMA to AMO. Mm -hmm. um, and now you have 
like now your main responsibility is maybe is maybe research mm -hmm. and writing or whatever uh but maybe your deadlines are just as tight and so you're still working 80 hours a week yeah, you're just sure. like working spending all of that time yeah. doing one thing as opposed to doing multiple yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's an interesting way to think about it, but no, I, I mean, it does strike me that like that that uh, that that split is all about kind of labor and monetization, but it doesn't necessarily uh, imply. Well, it it, it also I, it doesn't necessarily imply any changes for questions of like whose labor and yeah. who's benefiting for that from that labor. Yeah. In, in in either case on either side, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, overall, I mean, uh I think this is one of one of the de like definitely one of the more thought-provoking pieces we've read and in kind of mm -hmm. fun and angry. Sorry sorry Anjali. I know Anjali was really sad that she had to miss uh yeah, she was I'm really sorry. looking forward to reading uh, an I'm Alexander not very Lange fun piece. or angry today. <laughs> So maybe yeah, me either. Maybe you're, you're always fun. This is the yeah. This is oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can be uh, cute and tired. You can be cute and I can be tired. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> so whatever. That can be the sub the substitute edition. If, uh, if you just worn a jumpsuit, <laughs> it would have been better. So you're missing the jumpsuit yeah, part of just, this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Anjali usually comes in and this is radio, Jamie. They don't know. They don't know that Anjali usually this is comes a in peak wearing a jumpsuit behind the radio curtain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right okay all right yeah. i'll keep that in mind yeah um yeah i don't know i mean i i feel like um but you know i i'm happy anjali's getting a good vacation and yeah definitely it's very yeah. important well uh when we come back from break um we'll be answering your listener questions about buildings but um do you have any do you have any final wrap-up comments before we go to a break or anything no i mean i think it's a really I would just say I really enjoyed reading Alexander's piece and it was very thought provoking for yeah. me. And I hadn't really frankly, I just hadn't really spent much time thinking about SML XL because I just didn't find yeah. it to be all that interesting. And now I have found like a new way to think about it, which yeah. um is cool. Yeah, I um yeah, I really appreciate for me it was a moment of like uh nostalgia and like sort of thinking about <laughs> thinking about that book and how it was important to me and in the, the kind of critical aspects of it. So I, I appreciate I did I did remember though, you know, one of the reasons why we, we had a summer break was because we went to the DSA convention um mm -hmm. where you know you you were organizing up a storm as a delegate and I was a kind of alternate. Um but we were in it was in Atlanta and it was in the John Portman Design Weston building. Mm -hmm. And so it was a like very an extra surreal moment because I was thinking about Rem Koolhaas and his and his essay on John Portman, which I highly recommend people read. And we're like doing socialism like in this like John Portman, like, you know, crazy, very like artful, brutalist thing. We're like in like John Portman's world. And it was just like all it was like my entire set of references in life it was uh, and activities John Portman's were, world were and we were just living in, in it yeah it was a it was an extra surreal experience especially if you had this in the back of your mind definitely <laughs> cool uh all right well marina thank you so much um thanks for having me and uh we'll come back with links in air and i will i'll i'll, I'll see you later okay bye yeah, bye if you enjoy listening to Buildings on Air and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com.
Hey, it's the Buildings on Air mailbag segment with Ann and Craig from Future Firm. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. And as Jamie said, this is the mailbag where we answer your listener questions about architecture and buildings. And it, it's been a while. We had a summer break. And uh, before that, um, you know, we had Yeah, some, what have you guys been yeah. doing? I hear you, you had some tree removal issues. And, uh... <laughs> oh, <laughs> I feel like we're the Fern Gully of the neighborhood. Not Fern Gully. We're the bad guy in Fern Gully of the neighborhood. <laughs> oh, who is the bad guy in Fern Gully? Uh, you know, you know like, like the, the voracious, yeah, oh, okay. like logging machine. <laughs> okay. That was us. <laughs> uh, you'll have to give some context for the listeners. We um, bought a lot across the street from this very radio station. Um, and there was a very large cottonwood tree, which... I'd like to say seemed to be very old because it was very large, but the arborist said it was only like 30 years old. So, you know, like whatever, it didn't even have a tree PhD yet. Um, (laughs) And it was located in a place that would make it kind of impossible for us to build our future home and office. So then we um, had it removed, but it was a big um, shenanigans, which caused Jamie and the other people of the neighborhood uh, a lot of trouble. And for that, we apologize. But we hope it is better because your allergies will be better in the future when you're not in a cloud of cottonwood dust this every is true. summer. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, guys. Thank you. <laughs> it caused the neighborhood a lot of consternation because they had to shut off the power to do it. And they had to try a couple times to shut off the power. Right. Did because they shut off the power to CoPro? Uh, briefly. I see. Briefly. It, well, w- it was only – it turned out only to be a small lag. So – when the radio station disappeared uh, momentarily, you could blame Anna Craig. <laughs> <laughs> and if Urban Lab was, you know, late on completing your building, it's because their power was also shut down and they could not use our computers. And if any other things <laughs> went awry in the they past just, month, it is our fault. We're sorry. We take the blame. <laughs> they just went out and walked that new beautiful dog they have. They were yeah, fine. Right. Gus, yeah. Gus. Speaking of, we should have had uh, Sarah done of – uh, Urban Lab on this because we just spent like thirty minutes talking about OMA and she is one mm. of the one of those OMA alums. I thought you were gonna say so we could have a new Dogs of Bridgeport welcoming. Yeah, ceremony. no, that, that, that's that's way more fun than talking <laughs> about OMA. I think uh, our odds of our odds of getting her on board for that would be much higher than <laughs> you know. Tell me everything about you know the nineties. Um, <laughs> Although Sarah, Sarah, and, Sarah and Martin of Urban Lab, they were on the mythical mm-hmm. first episode mm-hmm. of Buildings on Air, which is lost to history now. So we do we do need to have them back at some point. Mm. Just need a good excuse. Maybe dog talk's the way to go. You know, next time the power goes out, you could have them on, and then it, they could just remain. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the Buildings on Air joke. Yeah, uh, right. Sarah and Martin. <laughs> have they actually ever been on? Yeah. Um, all right. Well. Y'all have been good sports for this five-minute ribbing. Are you ready to answer some (laughs) uh, actual questions about buildings? Let's see what we can do. Cool. Uh, Let's start. Uh, What can I do to separate my property from my neighbors that looks good but isn't expensive? Oh, so okay, this is a com- <laughs> wait 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 okay all right no I'm I'm just realizing now that this question is very poorly written. Um, <laughs> sorry to impugn your writing, whoever asked it, but I think that they want to know what they can do to separate their property from their neighbors that is cheap and looks nice. Not they they want they don't have a need to separate the themselves from their neighbor's property, which is a good looking <laughs> property and but not yeah. expensive. I was just saying, <laughs> walk, walk back to your house. <laughs> yeah. 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 There was a critical missing comment there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. yeah. The, they want the separator to be cheap and 
uh, and, and looking and good. Be- looking good yeah. Not their neighbor no. who is. We <laughs> have no information. About Maybe they're like, in the neighbor's basement, and this is a cry. For help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. How do I separate? <laughs> I think we a were, living fence. I don't know. You say what? We were just. Uh, we took a little vacation to Lisbon, and one of the things I was noticing there was that everyone had these like kind of nice garden walls that mm. always had a slightly different style to them. Um, I think like uh, a nice brick garden wall could be beautiful. Mm-hmm. You could make it out of uh, many different things. You could have your friends over and do a little brick lane party. Yeah. Hmm. I own 300 uh, concrete <laughs> breeze blocks in Peoria. You are not allowed to sell dicks on the radio station. Have you forgotten this critical rule? Just saying, unrelated. I, I don't know what I'm going to do with them, and I think they could look nice for a garden wall. We Maybe. do think breeze block is back. Um, yeah. Everyone is talking about you know the resurgence of the 60s and 70s breeze block, and Edra Soto just did a beautiful installation with custom yeah. breeze block that I've been seeing on. I was going to be on the. I was going to be on the cutting edge of that until the city of. <laughs> Chicago building department <laughs> told me otherwise. What are some good plants that could make a good living fence? I think you could do like a nice apple tree where you, as the apple tree grows, you strap the branches to the side of the yeah. fence so that it grows flat. That's so actually get... pretty complex. Just to, as the gardener of the mm. group, I want to step in and tell you that that's not as easy as you think it is. Isn't there a word for that? Training yes, but trees? it's a French yeah. word and it's impossible for I, me to I say. I want to yeah. say esplanade, but that's is not. Is no, th- there's a way. And basically what, what Craig is talking yeah. about is, uh, is a way to actually get a large variety of apples in a small space. It's mm. vertical farming, basically. And what you do is you... You really have to severely prune your trees. And, mm-hmm. and in this climate, by the way, that's a little risky because we get such hard freezes. You, you want to make sure if you're going to ever do anything like yeah. that, you don't prune at the wrong time. But I would say a better thing for that might be, especially in this neighborhood since it's native, Rose of Sharon's grow all over the mm-hmm. place. They were introduced in this neighborhood, and they're beautiful, even though my wife hates them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amaryllis, uh, Clematis grow mm-hmm. very easily and well in this climate. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with an old-fashioned uh, grapevine, actually. Um, there are a number of... Nice grapevines that can go along fences and walls and will and are nice for birds and bees and other insects. Mm. Yes, a nice ecology on the property line. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I know in, in Chicago, too, you should be mindful of if, if you're building within three feet of the property line, your fence or whatever, uh, it, it needs to be of a non-combustible construction. Right. Although um, that, unless this it is, is growing out of the unless earth. Unless it's growing out of the earth, right. which, yeah. Which is a loophole. Which is a, what a loophole it <laughs> right. is, yeah. I mean, uh, you, could, you could also use boxwoods. I mean, people did, yeah. like, mm-hmm. boxwood uh, topiary to, to divide lots for yeah. years. I, I actually agree with Craig. You know, when I was growing up in Scotland, we all had these little kind of allotments that were done by brick or mortar walls. And I actually looked into that at our place because I really missed that. That was something I really missed. And I hate the the crappy chain link fences and the T111 that you put up. Um, It's it's more expensive, but it looks really nice. And if you do it correctly, it will literally outlive you. There's no question about that. I think that that's the real answer to this question. Don't cheap out on it and do something nice. Yeah, don't (laughs) and don't because yeah. What's the the, I feel like the common thing to do is to. to, uh, I mean, people flaunt the the non combustible rule all the time and make wood fences. And now they have like I've, I've heard them called like gen- the the gentra fences, the gentrification, <laughs> f- like the wood slat fence, mm. yeah. sort of. Which you know I think mm. can maybe look a good way to nice. fight gentrification is to start calling those into the building department. Yeah, get there some you violations go. rolling. <laughs> <laughs> Almost every alley uh, 
alley facing has a wood fence in this neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, it's technically almost everything is out of code uh, around here. Yeah. Because <laughs> it is. It's all, I mean, it's all cedar and stuff. Yeah. I guess yeah. it is limited, but it's it's yeah. mainly cedar. Yeah. Doing plants also gets you around the six-foot rule, right? So for zoning, right. your fence has to be six feet or less, mm-hmm. uh, six feet or fewer. No, less. less six feet correct. or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the... Um, so doing some sort of plant or you could do like a six foot wall that has planters on top of it or something to get yourself some yeah. more height and privacy, there which is go. nice for the backyard. Yeah. Right. And I like a good brick wall. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You can uh, get Chicago common bricks really cheap that are like uh, uh, salvaged bricks. Yeah. That would probably make good. Good. Yeah. They're, they're fairly. I mean, you, it should be pointed out, though, it, to do any kind of masonry. You, you do need a modicum of skill. You you, yes. you kind of need yeah. to know what you're doing because Jamie, yeah. five yeah. minutes watching YouTube videos, they'll be fine. <laughs> a shot of tequila, <laughs> a little yeah. border. The world yeah. is your oyster. Right. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Just wait till we start building our house, and you all have to come over and play some CMU. I am anticipating these phone calls <laughs> as the resident handyman of, of building Sun Air. <laughs> Jamie, the walls tipping over. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> next question. How come my water bill is $400 instead of my usual 60 or $70? I don't see anything leaking. I took a look at some pipes and everything is fine, question mark? Hmm. Uh, well. Uh, there's lots of pipes that you can't see. Right. First of all. Yeah, but you'd probably notice the leak. You think? Yeah, you probably yeah. would have a soft spot in your yard, first of all, if there was a leak. At least in Chicago, if there was a leak coming from the water, which comes from the street in right. your house, you, you'd probably have either um, water bubbling on your sidewalk or um, you'd see something in your little front area. Not- but your meter is inside the house. So if there's a leak between the main line and the street and the front of your house, oh, you you're, not get a build for it. Yeah. you're not getting billed for that. But well, it-, it depends on what side of the drain tile you're on, actually, in, in this ward. Depend if if it is beyond the drain tile, you are liable for it. As I found out to my horror a few years mm, ago, right. you well, are liable for it. Yeah, yeah, you're liable for fixing the pipe. But yeah. like the thing that's counting how many gallons you're using is usually in your basement. Correct. No, you're right on that. And you As, can see the thing spin too. I mean, if it's spinning yeah. over like crazy and you're not running any water, then you <laughs> yeah. obviously might want to call the water department. Yeah. But you also, uh, it could be that they don't that they're an unmetered building. And I think that they're starting to change how much they charge you for an unmetered building because they're trying to incentivize people to get meters. Oh, right. Which would, yeah, which would explain that they're, right. they're, it's kind of like a fee on the water bill. For well, you know, there's a flat, there's a flat, especially in this ward, there's a flat fee that you pay. It's You pay water and you pay garbage. Right. I mean, spe- if we're talking specifically, if this is a question from Bridgeport. I don't know. Don't know. Um, <laughs> well, there's a lot of unmetered properties here. Yeah. And the reason is, is that Bridgeport for a long time resisted having meters. That was a conscious <laughs> political decision that was made at the ward. Huh. And what it did was it allowed businesses to come in the area and pay far less market for water huh. they used while homeowners kind of made up the difference. And for a long time, it didn't really matter because the amounts were so small. But now people are getting water bills and garbage bills that are around 1000 to 1200 a month. Yeah. This so it is starting to make an impact. The problem is the smart meter program that the water department tried to put in has been really flawed. Like a third of the meters have been damaged. I see. So there's yeah. not a lot of trust necessarily because people have gotten like $25,000 water bills from faulty meters. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, yeah, I know in our house we had this this issue where the landlord came by and he was like, <laughs> he was like, yeah, there's a leak somewhere. And he, you know, I was standing out there and I looked and sure enough, the meter was spinning and spinning like real fast. And I was like, oh man. And uh, <laughs> we looked and, and there was a slight damp spot in the foundation wall because it was it was this the service line going going up you know we have this a three flat so up mm. and so he he started chipping away at the concrete luck he used to be a building super so he kind of knew what to do and he was just did he get he, a permit before he ripped out that concrete <laughs> absolutely not no i'm not gonna <laughs> and yeah but uh yeah it was what's it, the address of your building yeah again? right yeah right yeah but luck lu- lucky he uh didn't because you know he solved it in like three hours and it could have like really started to create a cavity underneath the you know mm. underneath the, the it wouldn't have been under the foundation but just yeah. under the slab that mm. could have caused some further damage but yeah he like popped it open and like sure enough there's just like water like shooting <laughs> shooting out of the floor which is uh, an, an unnerving sight uh, and then he fixed it no sign so poured the concrete back the end yeah <laughs> the end. a Bridgeport story um if parts of a floor are making a creaking sound when I step on them, does that mean that in the near future I'll fall through? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you should rip that floor out. <laughs> and hire an architect to redesign the floor. Yeah. It's one of the most critical home issues that Americans are facing today, the creaky floor. <laughs> People every day are tumbling, People tumbling every, through. Uh, well, there's at least 15 deaths in the last week alone in Bridgeport. From this. <laughs> right. Vaping. Yeah. That, that story's oh. old. The vaping deaths, yeah. it's the floor. It's yeah. the floor squeaking that's yeah. killing people. Fun fact, in this ward, our floors are an inch thicker than in other wards. <laughs> True. Because of this problem. Thanks to the <laughs> thanks to the mayor of Bridgeport, Richard J. Daly. <laughs> he cared about us to make that building code. All right, that's a <laughs> This is such an in-joke that will not make sense to anyone else. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. For, 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 yeah, we, we broadcast and live in Bridgeport. It's a small town in a big city. For <laughs> better and for worse. Yeah. For better and for and, worse. And the home of, what, five mayors, I think yeah. it is, total yeah. Uh, yeah. in the city. So it's a political, political stuff. Yeah. The, okay, so to seriously answer the question, the your floor is floor joists and then a subfloor, and then oftentimes older wood floors are on sleepers and then a wood floor. So the squeaking is the top wood floor uh, moving up and down or maybe the sleepers underneath that that are holding the floor squeaking. There's a palace in Kyoto with a nightingale floor where the floorboards were actually tuned to kind of play uh, like a har- ah. harmonious squeaking in order to detect potential assassins so that <laughs> were you trying to sneak up on the emperor's family, you would, you know, accidentally play a beautiful kind of <laughs> minimalist sound art project uh, song yeah. Uh, yeah. as you approach the sleeping Another family. way to think about that is <laughs> the emperor would hear something beautiful shortly before their <laughs> imminent death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah, I, I, at first I was going to, my reference was going to be like, oh, like the big piano in that movie, in the in movie Big, big oh, featuring yes. Tom Hanks. Yeah. And then you're like, like, and then, uh, but the assassins. And I was like, oh, okay, not like that at all. Mm-mm. I think um, it was like preventative, so you know yeah, that, that you would you would be alerted. Early home alarm. Yeah. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Interesting. It was very I mean, clever. I I think yeah, people still do that sometimes, right? I mean, it feels hire like assassins. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> allow like their floorboards. Leave, leave a squeaky board yeah. just in yeah. case. Yeah. Like, uh, 
It feels like something you'd see in a Clint Eastwood movie or something. Oh, I was going to say, like, the movie Entrapment, where Catherine Zeta-Jones crawls around the lasers. Maybe there's a movie where they have to, like, tiptoe perfectly across the squeaky board. But, yeah, I mean, the the reason it happens is, like, wood wood sort of bows and bends over time, especially as it kind of dries out. uh, Of course, if they're on a concrete floor, then we're really, really (laughs) underplaying this whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you're you're on a wood floor... You got, you got very little to worry about. Um, obviously, if it starts moving or squeaking a lot, like a lot, a lot, then you you know might want to investigate further. But even then, you probably it's probably seems okay. Yeah, when our landlord installed new flooring in the office space that we share with Kiefer, they put like uh, probably two thousand pounds of flooring in one spot in the middle of our floor, and it sank like a good three inches and it didn't collapse. Yeah. So it takes a lot to... Yeah, I mean, most... So lo- we were worried at that moment. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know why we're acting yeah. so blase about it now. <laughs> I was like, the office is going to be gone tomorrow. It's true that like most of the structural building codes are like even just about like ensuring the feeling of safety, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like structures can move a lot before they collapse. But like, obviously, if you feel them moving, that's like a really uncanny thing. And so a lot of like engineering best practices are like, well, how do you make it so it doesn't collapse? But also, how do you make it so it doesn't move? Like there's like a number, I think it's like a uh, it's, they have a, a, it's L over 360 is the minimum, right? And yeah. L over 4 four something is the like luxury. <laughs> yeah, and I think in, in skyscrapers, there's a like an, a horizontal acceleration too. And they put they, that they, blow-through window in recently at uh, the Chicago skyscraper they're building. Right? At Vista. Vista. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Vista. To, to kind of eliminate some of that. Yeah. Which I thought was really we, cool, by the way. Definitely don't want billionaires and their new condos getting motion sick. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, <laughs> don't it is one of the things we worry about intensively on this show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, next question. Would it be a good idea to take the waste heat from an air conditioner? Yes. HVAC. Thank you. God. And you waiting. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've been dying without an AC. <laughs> this is yeah, this Thank is an you. appropriate question for as as we're in like this kind of lovely late summer period. Would it be a good idea to take the waste heat from an air conditioner and use it for a water heater? Oh. Uh well, it de- it depends, right? It depends. Like you could do like in a heat exchange system. Yes, using the heat off of one system to inform another system always uh, is a better use of energy. For instance, I recently just heard that all of the air conditioning condensate from uh, Burj Khalifa actually is used. The tallest building in the world. The tallest building in the world in the middle of uh, the desert is all of the condensate from that air conditioning is used to irrigate the landscape around that building. Ah, how interesting. That's cool. Yeah, I I know um, it's a very common thing, too. I I, I saw in in lots of, like, big buildings, they're always doing heat exchanges of different kinds, depending on what it is. And because usually in a a large building, it's some common, if there's forced air, heating, cooling, and there usually is some of that, Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's combined with some sort of like boiler system right. or like a like a cooling tower that's you know there's there's usually mm-hmm. some sort of liquid and air combination that they're but the question is asking is the I, like what the freezing in the question makes me think like they want to hack it like i guess yeah. i'm thinking about like the converter kit that you can use to change uh 
a gas vehicle to an electric vehicle? Is there like a hack well, uh, energy system yeah. you, that mean, we can, you know, from yeah. a regular residential? Just throw your condenser into a pool of water. <laughs> yeah, just do that. And, and, set, and set your conditioner in the middle of the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Surrounded by a curtain, as yeah. we explained in a previous episode. <laughs> a previous episode of Bailing Center. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, the, the one thing I was going to say, like, for big buildings, it's, it's commonplace. A lot of universities and schools will do that. But I think for smaller systems, like, I don't know if you'd get a lot of um, – return if you tried to do it on a on a home system yeah is the point i mean i think like we were talking about it a little before the the start of the show you could do it but i think the the money and finance you'd put in to get it would not be worth the return you'd be better off spending that money on passive solar heating or you know what i mean something that that would give you a much better return um because most of the hvac systems that are on modern houses anyway are actually fairly efficient you know they're they're not bad you're not losing a lot um, well, and and there's this basic problem in residential buildings where the condenser is like you know outside and far and distant from right. your water heater, right. and and then and in and in a big building because there's kind of I mean there's it's these things are kind of of scale you can you know you don't have it's not as lossy right right like it's more right. it can be more efficient when you're moving your air and liquid around. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess the answer is you could. I don't know if it's the, the best use of your time or money, I guess, is my yeah. – my, that it would be my take on it. might be even super sustainable, I guess, depending on what the carbon footprint is of, like, the the hacking kit that right. you're using or, like, the heat exchanger that you install or whatever. But I might think – be greater than the energy th- savings. Well, thinking about it a little more, I wonder if, you know, we do as climate change continues to affect us, though, whether that would be something that is we're going to have to address, though. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Recapturing that heat exchange and, and reusing it in more modern systems. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, an interesting question. Um, next question. Um what is a good this okay this is this is a very practical <laughs> question and it's kind of funny in that it's like just so what is a good research topic for a construction management thesis <laughs> someone needs help with their homework mm. for con, for like construction like managing a construction company yeah uh, like or a CM. being a construction yeah. manager of like a project like but a it's a thesis project. It's yeah, thesis presumably project. it's a thesis for a program about. What's what's a famous project. building that was just completely trashed from start to finish? Okay. Oh, you could you could do uh, Madison Square Garden. What not to do with a iconic building or Penn Station? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, but that's on the architects, not the not the, the construction yeah. managers. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean. Get, uh, you know, you guys keep keep talking. I'm thinking. <laughs> Does, I mean, it's tricky. Thesis advice well, in the middle of the day on a Saturday. There, there was there was the case of the Civic Center in Hartford, which collapsed uh, on its roof due to snowfall because the the uh, engineers and the uh, construction people hadn't built it properly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, collapsed during the blizzard of '77, I want to say. But um, I think that there's maybe something about material delivery to dense urban sites. Ah, mm, maybe there you go. That's a really good one. I'm thinking about this very acutely because I'm about to have to – I'm about I'm embarking on a project on a very tall loft building in a very dense part of the city. <laughs> and, I, mm-hmm. and I'm going to have to think about – like the, just getting the crane up there is going to be like a significant cost of the project. Uh, I was going to say that I think there's sh- something about um, crediting complex teams. Mm. Like it has always seemed to me that on a construction fence there's the signifier for like the architect or the – um, GC or whatever, and sometimes trades also put 
um, their banners up, but like, is there a way as we're thinking more complexly about how to deliver like through BIM, right? How to kind of manage complex building processes better on the representational side? Like how could we credit like everybody who worked on a project and to the extent that they worked on it in a way that is more nuanced? Yeah. I don't know. That's also really good. <laughs> Those are two killer ideas. Uh, man. That's what Future Firm does. Yeah. Killer <laughs> ideas all day long. <laughs> don't stop now. <laughs> okay, we're out of ideas. Uh, We've used them all up. <laughs> ne- <laughs> next, uh, next question. I think this person might have been um, using some substances when they wrote it. <laughs> they were drunk when they wrote this one. <laughs> yeah. Our um, favorite kind. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> what color is a mirror? What colors? <laughs> you know, actually, I. This is more of a riddle than a building's <laughs> question. I don't know. No, I don't know how it made the cut. Do I get to marry the princess if I answer this correctly? I think this is an interesting question because, in for instance, in 3ds Max, when you're making a rendering, it doesn't matter what you set the color to. Once the reflection is high enough, the uh, it always looks like chrome. I. Don't know. This is well. I mean, mirrors were made originally with silver, silver black, and that was the way yeah. you made glass reflective. Yeah. But when you look at it, Jean, <laughs> <laughs> and when you're then you're seeing yourself, and you yourself yeah. are well, as everybody on this show knows. <laughs> in a mirror, as everyone knows on this show, I actually cannot be seen in mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> we actually veil all mirrors in black cloth before Jamie yeah. comes over. <laughs> Lest yeah. he, like a vampire, right. see yeah. himself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think they have a color. I think um, they have whatever color is. Re- but they, I guess they could like um, uh, have a color that imparts a tint mm. to whatever is be- the colors that are being reflected. Mm. What is the material that is applied to the back of a piece of glass to make a mirror? It's silvering. It's mm. a. It's like a silver black. It, it used to be made from silver. Mm. It was an alloy, and they painted it on. Sometimes on on cheaper mirrors too, they they use like a reflective mylar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like those little hand mirrors you get, like if you buy cosmetics or something at Walgreens, yeah. something like that. Yeah, and some of the reflective mylar is like really uncanny in mm. in how perfect it is. It's uh, mm. yeah. it makes you look real good. Yeah. <laughs> if only you could see yourself. If only I could see myself. <laughs> and not just. That's a, why I have so many fog. gleaming issues. Yeah, the <laughs> fog in the bat. You know. <laughs> the lightning uh, strike. The lightning strike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kate, we got time for one more kefir. Last question. Uh, bathtubs. Why do they always make bathtubs using lighter colors? So you can see when they're gross and dirty and clean them? <laughs> I think it might well, be the opposite reason, actually. I think they might co- conceal, like a, like a black car, you can see all of the dirt. I have like black floors in my house, and mm. you actually can see everything more. Uh, then on a white. Color. Well, I mean, you can get a, a bathtub. You can get like a pink bathtub. Yeah, or whatever. I mean, I've got a. Well, I mean, I painted it, but I, yeah, I mean, I guess it's white on the inside. I hadn't thought of this. It's blue on the outside. It's a cast iron. Yeah. You can mm. decorate it however you want. But they make like uh, black ones and mm-hmm. pink ones. I've seen them and green ones. It was a very Kohler like... now makes bathtubs that light up and are digital. <laughs> oh, that really? are no color, like a mirror, yeah. in the sense that the LED light will color them based on your. <laughs> we watch Ooh. a lot of Kohler ads in our free yeah. time. Wow. Um, the Kohler lobby's gotten to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm not supposed to sell or advocate for any products. That was just a straight. We're not advocating for them. Time. We're making fun of them for trying to sell a $10,000 toilet. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm waiting for like that. I feel like the 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 dark and odd colored uh, bathroom appliances. Those are very 1970s. Yeah, trend. but they're all like those pastel colors, which are very in vogue right now. So right, it's true. Who knows? I you know. I'm sure we'll be specking those in the near future be as they them become soon, yeah. on trend again. Will you guys ask the scam? Oh yes, question. Oh, yeah. Um, Very quickly. So um, in in the last month, uh, Future Firm and Kieferdon Architect has Kieferdon comma, comma Architect. Kieferdon comma we'll Architect. That's how we refer to you. <laughs> and 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 actually, the buildings on air email address have gotten an email. Um, that's that says, uh, and I, I don't know whose yours was from. What the, do you remember the We've name? We've gotten multiples of them, but the name on the one that we got, I Googled, and it was a person living in Chicago. Interesting. And the email just had like a two at the end yeah. of it. Or so something. we don't want to say their name and because it might be like it might be a real person. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I've gotten them with like a, a couple, I've seen them with different names as well. It's always like a very generic, like sort of like, you know, name, like a very like American, like. Like John Patterson, like sort of name, uh, but it's hello. I'm blank. How are you doing today? Do you do architecture drawing and design planning for residential house? And that's it. That's the email. And it's very strange because it seen you you emailed back once. So we've gotten a couple of these. The uh, the latest one I. I didn't catch us quickly yeah. because another architect that we are kind of friends with had forwarded it to us. They do all of their own projects now. They don't take on outside clients. So he's forwarded us, or kind of sent us work in the past. So because it came from him, I didn't think as critically about it. Mm-hmm. And it was only after I started emailing with the person that I was like, oh, this is another one of those scams. Because they always, uh, they as soon as you respond to them, they respond back and say like, great, I have this, like, huge budget, I'm really excited to work with you, but, like, my mother's in the hospital or something, and I can't leave here. And Yeah. So, so, and I did, I Googled the that, and it, it, that same message has been posted to, like, you know, building forums, yeah. like, on the internet, too, where it's, like, people are like, oh, I see you're an architect. So and we want to know, yeah. has anybody else received these? What variations on this have you received? And how far did you go along in the scam? Because we want to understand how the scam plays out. Yeah, I'm mega curious. And were Nigerian princes involved? <laughs> I, w- I want to know that. Yeah. So- I think I think the scam has something to do with uh, getting your account number so they can wire you a fee or something. I think the scam is going to be like they can't close on the lot until they have the, they have some money. And then they need you to transfer the money. Yeah. We would like to actually interview the person. So if that person by any small chance happens to be listening to this yeah. or you know them, we would like to anonymously yeah. interview you on the radio Because I, I want to know if if, they, if it's working. Because architects are like we don't like, we don't make a lot of money. It's a really, <laughs> it's a really horrible population to be scamming. I and feel we like would be so fish. annoying to scam. Yeah, we would be oh like, can God. you make a Pinterest board with your interest in residential architecture before we start this project? Oh also, we should tour this modernist house. We'd be the worst scam yeah. targets. So tell us more. If you know anything, uh, send an email to buildingsonair at gmail.com. Yeah, you should do that. And oh, there's our, there's our closing music. There we go. That's been that was mailbag. That's yeah, been your go. buildings on air mailbag. Yeah, Anne and Craig, thank you so much. And um, that's our show for the month. We actually have a special episode coming up. Uh, oh, we do. Yeah, yeah. On, Where are we doing on, it? On at? September twenty fifth. We'll yeah, don't be, I have to go tape that or something? Yeah, you will have oh, to tape shoot. it. And we won't be in the lovely co prosperity sphere. 
Rather, we will be in a Chicago River bridge house. More details to come, uh, but listen for that special episode. Yeah, that's right. I got to go down there and visit that and make sure we can actually do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'll be the Buildings Boy. on Air bridge special. And also uh, check check out the, the Togetherism programming coming together here at the Co-Prosperity Sphere, um, including the show about architecture advoc- that's uh, right. advocacy and activism called Now What? Right. There's lots of good stuff attached to it. Cool. All right. For everybody, Billings and Air, next month? Next month? Yep. September 25th. Thanks, Amy. We'll see that. Thank you. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at bldgsonair or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes. 